0: Different topics each week anthropologically. Enjoy. All right. Hey, Bulls. How are you doing? Happy Friday. It is 3 o'clock. So you know what that means. It is Anthro Alert. Friday afternoons for Anthro Alert. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, you're listening to Bulls Radio, WUSF 89.7 HD 3 Tampa, 1620 a.m. on campus, and streaming worldwide at bullsradio.org. You can also listen to us on tuneitin.com if you so choose. So just like always, the show is about anthropology and why it matters. We try to emphasize the why it matters part. Each week we'll discuss how anthropology is relevant and over time we'll feature various guests from the Department of Anthropology to discuss their research and have some discussions on everyday topics and current events. We believe this is a good opportunity for us. As anthropologists, to better connect with the USF community and to raise awareness of the value of an anthropological perspective. But if you've tuned in in the past, and you already know all this. But just like every week, we like to preface our shows by saying that the statements that we make and the opinions that we express on AnthroAlert are our opinions and ours alone. And may not be representative of anthropology as a discipline, the USF anthropology department, uh, USF as a university, student government. Um, and anyone else that I've forgotten. (laughs) So, with no further ado, uh, this is your host, Spencer. Renee unfortunately, cannot be with us, but he is uh, enjoying a vacation before the semester starts, so we hope that he is relaxed and having a good trip. But we still have a good show for you today. We have Anna Abella. Say hi, Anna. Hi. And we are going to be discussing anthropology and parenting. It's going to be very, very interesting, and I think we're just going to hop right in. So, Anna, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Um, well, I, um, I got my undergraduate degree here um, a, a while ago in 2004. Mm-hmm. Um, I went on to um, get my master's degree um, in anthropology and women's and gender studies. And I um, came back to Tampa to work a nonprofit uh, for five years and then. Um, decided I wanted to continue to get that PhD after all, so <laughs> um, shortly after having my first child, I um, came back to pursue my PhD, um, and so I'm, um, my dissertation is on uh, parenting.
0: Awesome. So, yeah, so we'll, we'll be talking, so you were trying to understand how parental or organizational definitions of good parenting are, are constructed, and maybe how those... Um, diverge from each other or are similar, correct?
1: Yes, um, and some of that stemmed from my own experiences as a parent. Um, I initially was uh, focused on um, looking at um, social and emotional education, mm. um, and a lot of that did uh, go back to the home, but um, when I, I had uh, another child during the program, so um, I I was in this world of uh, what a lot of people refer to as intensive parenting, and um, I just I questioned it a lot and thought that it... Um, may not necessarily make sense for a lot of people. And so I wanted to see um, how that experience was for um, different people and how Mm -hmm. we even define what it means to be a good parent and what the pressures Mm -hmm. are around that.
0: What exactly is intensive parenting?
1: Um, So it's something that um, I I believe the the term was coined by Sharon Hayes, who is a sociologist um, who wrote The Cultural Contradictions of Motherhood. Um, But it's what a lot of people, a lot of academics, widely believe is the dominant way of parenting, where we spend a lot of time and energy and resources on our kids, and um, we have a very child-centered way of raising children, Mm. um, especially as compared to in the past Mm. and in other societies.
0: Okay. Hmm. So was it weird studying all of this while yourself kind of going through the (laughs) stages of being a parent?
1: Yes, um, because I, you know, I relate to that a lot. And I was in a circle where that was um, the dominant way of, that was the ideal way of parenting. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to sort of get past that and see, um, you know, is this something that everybody subscribes to? Or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, what are the the different ways that people think of parenting and parenting? for various reasons, I ended up not getting at so many different perspectives. I ended up work uh, my sample that I, um, did my research on was mostly, um, stay at home moms, you know, who are middle class and, mm-hmm. um, mostly white. Um, so, um, but I thought it was important to look at what that mainstream ideology is too, because there has not been a lot in the anthropological literature on mm-hmm. that. So, um, okay,
0: mm-hmm. great. So why don't we step back here for, for a second? Um, in your proposal, you kind of, you mentioned, um some words that i assume kind of show up in in this type of literature we're going to try to break them down um so you talk about like brain science in, in uh, parentheses and like developmental milestones and um, can you uh, can you explain what you mean by developmental milestones sure
1: so um a lot of this stems from neuroscience which i'm not in any way an expert in and that's not something i delved into but it is something that a lot of anthropologists um do work in and um with regard to parenting specifically, um, there was a lot of research um, on neuroscience done in the, I think, mid to late 90s that influenced the way we see babies and the way they developed. So um, neuroscience generally looks at the way the brain responds to different stimuli. So mm-hmm. a lot of research was done to look at um, what kind of like caretaking experiences affect babies in different ways. Um, and so that's where... The milestones come from, the milestones specifically look at different stages of development and what um, is best for um, babies and young children at different stages. So, for instance, um, you know, if they're three years old, they should be, uh, you know, starting to roll over or they should, you know, what kinds of eye contact or, or verbal skills do they have? All of these things um are very specifically outlined by parent mm. advice books, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, along mostly throughout the first three years, that's the biggest emphasis. Of course, children develop beyond that, but that's okay. where, like that's True. you know, the big time period to focus on is.
0: Okay, so when we're talking about definitions of, of good parenting, um, whether that be from like a parent's personal definition or maybe an organization's definition, how do the how do these um, Developmental milestones, how do they differ between those those two definitions
1: well from from what I, the study that I did, uh, they did not differ very much, and um, okay. part of that was because the parents were so heavily influenced by you know, organizational or professional definitions of, mm-hmm. of good and you know, nobody calls it good parenting. That is sure. very much in, in um, quotation marks. Right. <laughs> um, right. But that's, you know, sort of the feeling that they had about what was best to do. And um, one of the things I talk about is this movement towards scientific parenting um, that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, other scholars talk about mm-hmm. um, throughout the 20th century, but has yeah. you know, yeah. where there was this folk knowledge of parenting that was based on, you know, generational knowledge and families and communities learning from mm-hmm. each other. Sure. And, yeah. um y- you know, through um, the professionalization of, um, you know, through doctors and, you know, major institutions that, you know, gained this knowledge about child development, um, it has really been taken out of the hands of parents. And mm-hmm. we really rely strongly on mm-hmm. um, science in order to guide um, how we understand the best way to raise children. Right. So,
0: so, yeah. So how do you, how did you see sort of that relationship changing? You know, I, I assume that, many parents before a lot of this research is done, I mean, you learned how to parent from your parents, you know, most of the time, you know, there's that generational chan like, um, transition or transfer of knowledge. But now, like you said, we're getting everything from maybe like, like doctors or, uh, you know, counselors or, you know, Mm -hmm. experts and, and children. So did you see, did you see any, um, like generational transfers of knowledge still, still going on?
1: It was pretty mixed what I saw. You know, I tried to look at whether there was, um, you know, w- either family or expert knowledge being used more, and it and mm. it was uh, pretty individual. Although a lot of parents um, that I interviewed did say that they, um, were they had negative experiences with their parents, or they mm. were confused by different messages, or they saw what they didn't want to do from their you know, sisters or brothers sure. or, or whatever. So right. they um, felt more comfortable relying on this science. And, you huh. know, it was very validating to them. And the same was true for some um, developmental professionals that, you know, this was basically, you know, the right way or the answer um, to, to parenting.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. So where, where are the parents um, getting most of this information? Are they getting it from uh, f- like friends or um, books or the internet or you know where you know, where are they getting this advice mostly
1: um, yeah so I asked uh, all of them about the resources they use the most and um, some of them use some common books like the what to expect series that is uh, popular with pregnant women also goes into the early years um, mm. a lot of them um, were part of what they call attachment parenting so there's a whole uh, Dr. Sears is someone who writes a lot of books about that, um, but a lot of them um, used apps that um, track development. They sort of say what um, developmental stage your child should be in, or you know what signs to look for to make sure they're on track. Hmm. Um, which was interesting because um, you know they felt like they had to do a lot of work to keep their children on track. That was sort of a right. a key to um, this kind of parenting, um, and others. Um, Found that experiences they looked at in blogs um, were mm-hmm. really helpful just to see like what else was out there so so that piece is still there it's just mm-hmm. um you know ironically through technology
0: <laughs> right it's well to me it seems like maybe there there's some negative outcomes that could come yeah. from always trying to parent based off of like technology or like you know my yeah. child's three he hasn't rolled over yet you know what's wrong with him or oh, you know right, something right. like that so mm-hmm. you know did you experience or have you experienced or you know what does the literature say about maybe like negative consequences about this
1: there are certainly um, many critics um, of what there's actually a book called Neuroparenting. parenting um, and there's a sort of a group of I'm not sure if there are sociologists or people who study this exact topic mm. out of the UK, it's pretty popular there, hmm. um, who are critical of this way of parenting because they say it's, you know, cold and it's sort of um, far removed from right. from parental instinct. Kind of um, mechanical. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> um, that it creates uh, an environment of um, fear and paranoia, which, um, which I also saw. Um, and I, there's... Um, this uh image of a brain scan that is often used in um either you know parenting advice books or i've seen it online a few times where it's of a uh there was a study done of a romanian orphanage um, to look at the effects of extreme neglect and abuse Hmm. and um so this brain scan is of a child from there um and it's and it's compared to a healthy like three-year-old brain and um it, it's very um shrunken and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot less gray matter and so this image is sort of used to say this is what happens if we don't um you know provide a lot of um res- response and nurturing and um so i it's but it's an extreme example and i think the problem is that that's taken out of context and a lot of this right. m- you know brain science is is sort of misused and misinterpreted and that's what some other people have critiqued too
0: right huh so did... You know, studying all of this and being, you know, probably deep in the literature, by the time you're you were having children yourself, <laughs> did you find this kind of uh, information like distracting or you know uh, maybe a little unnerving in the process of trying to develop your own parenting style?
1: No, I actually it was a big relief um, because well when I started um, I had my first daughter. And I was, you know, someone who I, I considered to practice uh, attachment parenting. Mm. Um, but it was very intensive and it, w- it was great for a while, but it became exhausting and isolating. And I, it just didn't seem right to do a lot of that on my own. Um, I was in grad school, but that, you know, that was pretty much it. So um, once I started looking at the literature and um, also looking at the way parenting is conceived of in other societies it it just exposed how much it doesn't make sense to do it that way um Mm -hmm. to have you know like a stay-at-home parent doing everything on their own um so it was a relief to to see at least why it felt so hard um and it also made me feel like I didn't have to be quite so paranoid about the way mm. my children were development developing. So I've taken a much more relaxed approach <laughs> since doing this research. I
0: guess it's always <laughs> not a bad thing to learn what not to do. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so compare it against the literature. All um, right, we're gonna we're gonna pause the conversation uh, there for a second for a message from our sponsors and a short music break. Hey everyone, we're back. You're listening to Anthro Alert. We're gonna. Continue our discussion on anthropology and parenting. Uh, we hoped you enjoyed the music. Had a little bit of a transition issue there, but we figured it out. Wouldn't it wouldn't be Anthro Alert without technical difficulties, now would it? And you're listening to Bulls Radio, WSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa, 1620 a.m. on campus, and always streaming worldwide at bullsradio.org. All right, let's hop right back into our conversation with Anna, talking about anthropology and parenting. I forgot to ask you this um, before we left off for for the break, but what what role do you do you think that anthropology plays in in studying parenting or d- developing definitions of what you know good parenting might be quote unquote or these developmental milestones you know all of all of this type of research?
1: Sure. Um, well, one of the reasons that I wanted to do this research is because it, I I saw that there was a lack of um, study on, you know, the anthropology of parenting. There is no such thing as the anthropology of parenting, um, mm. you know, as a sort of unified sub-discipline. Um, there are some people who have written on it um, in the in the U.S. or in more, you know, Western societies. Um, parents and children have been written about for a long time. I mean, you can go back to Margaret Mead and Ruth Benedict, and, you know, you see examples of yeah. child-rearing or socialization. Yeah, sure. um, But that's very different than the way we think of parenting as a very um, – you know, explicit, sort of intentional thing to do now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted this to be something that contributed to that conversation um, a little bit more and tied some pieces together. There are some people who do work, um, I think they're psychological anthropologists, um, but they're, you know, sort of few and far between. Hmm. Um, so you're
0: kind of drawing your own map here.
1: <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> I mean, yeah, th- I think the foundation um, has been set a little bit. There mm-hmm. are. Um, to like sort of a team um sarah harkness and um charles super who write about something called parental ethno theories and um, yeah, that's, that's basically <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, doesn't exactly uh flow but um it's l- basically a cultural model um for hmm. parenting or like the hmm. parent's belief system and everything that has informed it so that's mm-hmm. i use that a lot in my hmm. dissertation um so you know like i said it's sort of a, a foundation but i don't think it's been elaborated on very much
0: hmm. that's yeah that's that's interesting. Um, yeah it doesn't I don't know this isn't my area, but sure. yeah it doesn't seem like there's maybe a a ton of research on like kind of the the questions that you're looking at
1: yeah, yeah. and um i mean I've, i' I feel like the the few pieces that I have seen which have been you know in the recent years, so I think it's growing um have looked at maybe some like resistance to mainstream ideas of parenting or the mm-hmm. ways that um minority parents or sure. um, you know parents who um, interact differently with mainstream ideas yeah. than uh, you know like middle class parents huh. um, so but I felt like it was it was sort of um, underdeveloped what we even consider to be a, a you know a mainstream idea of parenting in the U.S.
0: So. right well one one specific thing that I that I found interesting in your proposal was your um, you mentioning the concept of, of time and, and mm-hmm. how that that plays a role in um, parenting like uh, ideologies so how, how exactly does time play a factor in, in definitions of, of good parenting or parenting strategies
1: sure so um, I my working title is the time to love and that really has a dual meaning that I thought sort of um, summed up um, just you know the answer to that question um, And so, um, that means something different for parents and experts, um, from what I saw for parents. It means that the most important way to show, uh, love is through time. And, um, so a lot of the parents in my sample have, um, most of them are mothers and they have either quit their jobs or reduced their work, um, significantly, or they have very flexible jobs. And even some of the fathers, um, because they, you know, felt that that was the best way, um, to, to parent their children, um currently and to set them up for um better you know future success and relationships and all of that Mm -hmm. so by spending a lot of time with them um, that was the main thing they saw as being um, a good parent and um for um, developmental professional professionals um or experts the concept of time means that there is this window um usually it's described as one to zero to three years where um the most um the the most happens in a child's brain. And so it's the best time to be very responsive and nurturing and um, really have this pretty specific way of parenting in order to mitigate risks longer term. So Mm. um, time refers to both, um, you know, time equals love and um, a a period of time um, to do a certain kind of parenting.
0: So do you, did you find that maybe those definitions of of time kind of overlap? So maybe a, a mother would, quit her job for the first three years where she felt like it was the most important and then maybe yes. transition to like childcare or something like that
1: yes definitely i mean i think the motivation for wanting to spend the most time was because they have they are learning from resources all around them that it is or they're getting the message that is it is the most important time to, Mm -hmm. um, you know, spend a lot of time with your children. And, Mm -hmm. um, a lot of them do say that they, um, might make different, or they might go back to work, you know, after a few years or once their kids are in school, it's different, but it's Mm -hmm. this, you know, whole preschool or or zero to three time period is is seen as really important.
0: Hmm. Have you, I'm just curious, um, if you, you know, it's typically, I guess stereotypically, it's it's the mom that stays home. But did you mm-hmm. see any uh, maybe stay-at-home dads?
1: I didn't see any. Um, I had there was one dad in my um, who I interviewed um, with his wife, and he worked um, a very flexible schedule, and he was home. They did a, you know, a very balanced like co parenting kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, they both had flexible schedules, but he didn't work most of the daytime, I think. So, um, you know, I saw there was another dad that I spoke with, but did an interview, and he also reduced his, um, workload a lot. He, you know, and a lot of this came with pay cuts, of course. So, sure. you know, they, they saw this. Um, impetus to spend time with their children as outweighing, you know, the benefits that came with their jobs, which were sometimes intensive.
0: Right. So, I mean, there's kind of a reevaluation of priorities there, right. I guess. Right. So, um, when we're when we're talking about mothers or fathers uh, that choose to quit their jobs or go part time or have some sort of employment that allows them flexible schedules, you said that. Who you interviewed was typically uh, middle class, mo- mostly white mm-hmm. mothers. Um, do you, do you feel like you know maybe if uh, if there's parents that are in a position that that can't quit their full time jobs, how do you think that time then differs or plays a factor in, in different parenting strategies in that situation?
1: Right. Well, I think that um, that is one of the main things I wanted to look at is how does this affect parents who can't. Um, spend that much time with their children who can't just quit their jobs or reduce, you know, uh, not many jobs allow you that kind of flexibility. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think it would be the majority of families who are not able to do that. And what does that mean for their, um, you know, the way they're perceived in society or just the way that they, you know, They don't have the same access to parent in an ideal way if they believe in this sort of, you know, this intensive way of parenting as other parents. So it sort of contributes to an unequal system. And that's I I sort of use the idea of cultural reproduction Mm -hmm. um, to show that. Um, And so one of my conclusions is that um, if we as a society believe this is the best way to parent, then we need to do a much better job of providing. Um, structural supports that will allow all parents to do that because right now we're pretty um, low in that area among other um, industrialized societies right. you know we, pr- we it's not even guaranteed that anyone will get um, parental leave and if they do it's much smaller than what mm-hmm. other countries give that's a example. really good
0: that's a really good point of the you know the structural factors in here if you know if this is kind of the idea the ideology that we're you know proclaiming as as a You know, Western in the U.S. Mm -hmm. or you know in Western nations, then you know you kind of have to back that up with allowing parents the time to sort of play these roles. Because I I imagine if if you um, you know believe in these intensive forms of parenting, there's probably some guilt that can go into well, I can't quit my job, my you know I'm not going to be as loving to my child, or you know something like that, or maybe feeling feelings of guilt for not being able to spend that time.
1: Absolutely, Um, and. But on the flip side, um, there are parents who don't buy into this ideology sure. and some of that might be, um, because, um, they are, they have not been in the same kind of, um, community or network. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of times people are influ- influenced by their, um, friends or neighbors who happen to be in the same kinds of positions. So I think it's equally important to get at those parents' experiences. Um, I just didn't happen to do it through this <laughs> research.
0: Interesting. Yeah. I am I think there's a lot of um, really interesting research that can go on in this, um, you know, in this in this field in this area, um, but I guess you can't you can't do it all in one dissertation. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we're gonna take a break. Uh, we're gonna have a quick message from our sponsors and one more song. We're gonna come back and talk to Anna about uh, the process of writing her dissertation and what she may do afterwards. All right. Hey everyone. How are you doing? Hope you enjoyed the music. But we're back talking to Anna about anthropology and parenting. We're going to transition the conversation into, well, more about Anna personally and about her graduate student experience um, because Anna actually took a break in between her master's and PhD and she's the first student on here that actually took a gap year or <laughs> <Fine>. maybe, <laughs> yeah, a few years, gap few years. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to talk about her experience and what kind of advice you may have for, for graduate students. So Anna, what was it, what was it like, you know, why did, why did you choose to take a gap? And then, um, you know, how, how was it working in an industry with a master's in anthropology and maybe with a anthropological mindset and that, you know, all that, all that good stuff.
1: Right. Um, well, um, so as I mentioned, I, I got my bachelor's degree here in anthropology and um, I knew I wanted to pursue graduate school. Um, I thought I wanted to get my Ph.D., but I wasn't 100% sure. Um, so I, I chose between two programs, and one was a, a straight track to the Ph.D. Um, I ultimately decided against that um, just because I wasn't completely sure. Um, so I got my master's, and I really just felt done. <laughs> um, I felt mm-hmm. like I needed to do something more hands-on instead of, um, you know, thinking about things a lot. Right. <laughs> so, um and then I thought I might someday go back and get my PhD. So mm-hmm. I, I came back to Tampa and I worked in nonprofit. Um, I was lucky enough to find an organization that... Um, was relevant to um, my background and that valued my background in anthropology. Um, That's awesome. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, it's it's, uh, an organization, um, it's called Frameworks now. Um, it's called something different when I started, but, um, they do social and emotional, um, education. And so, um, we worked a lot with schools and community groups, um, with youth, um, mostly older kids, um, on things like, um, you know self-esteem and diversity and conflict resolution and and all of those things that don't really get taught structurally anywhere right um so it was really i felt like i could really use my background um we you know talked about gender issues a lot and race um so that was great um and i i you know this is probably the reality for a lot of people but i took i started as a you know part-time employee making not very much and mm. i um but that with the understanding that there would likely be opportunity for growth and right. luckily for me there was and i ended up you know in a director position not too long after um but i felt like my time had sort of uh, come to an end and you know, for various reasons. I had also just um had my first baby mm. and I felt like I wanted something more flexible while I had her, while I was raising her. So I thought this would be <laughs> a good time um, to start my PhD, which sounds kind of crazy right now, but <laughs> um, in some ways it was, in some ways it wasn't, but yeah. it did allow me more flexibility and a little more time with her. Mm. Um So I, I did my first year in this pro- PhD program full-time and it was little much for me it felt a little too stressful um so i I, you know scaled back a little bit and um, went part-time after that and eventually had another kid and um so i i did it a little different Mm -hmm. than a lot of other students and i felt um the sort of isolation of that and you know it was my own choice and my own doing but um i know a lot of um you know women and men probably are in that position of wondering when to start a family and, right. um, you know, whether to do it during grad school or after. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, I don't know if I have <laughs> advice about that. Um, right. I, it's definitely doable, but, um, you know, with some sacrifices and some struggle and everyone, you know, doesn't have to do it the way I did. I, I wasn't really on an academic track and I knew that. Um, so I didn't go to a lot of conferences and, you know, do a lot of extra things. Okay, um, So that's one, <laughs> you know, drawback. And that was, again, you know, my choice. Um, I think it depends on what kind of support system you have and, and all of that. but um,
0: So was it because you had already had um, experience in the workforce that you knew that you didn't want to be an academic... Uh, anthropologist yeah. you know academic PhD.
1: I think so. I mean I, it was not like it didn't cross my mind, but I didn't feel like that was necessarily my strength or my long term drive. Um, and I started in this applied program and I think that sort of set um, the tone for me. So um, I always just imagined um, staying in there and, and I didn't know if I wanted to go back to a nonprofit exactly, but I mm. knew um, I didn't want to be you know a, a full professor.
0: So for a student that may want to get their PhD, but also, um, you know, their end goal is not to be a professor, Mm -hmm, would you recommend getting, you know, taking, taking a gap year or maybe a few years to explore the workforce before you get your PhD?
1: I think it's, yes. I mean, I think it's, it's very beneficial. Um, it sort of gives you a chance to use whatever, you know, what skills you have learned. I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. Um, and it gives you an opportunity to see, um, I, I think, e- like hone your ideas about what, um, you know, it, it might change your ideas about what you thought you knew or about what might work, you know, and the, mm-hmm. the kind of work you want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what it did for me. So I think it can be really beneficial. You know, I did five years so that <laughs> I don't know if you need to do that many, but right. um, I, it, I don't feel like it hurt at all.
0: Hmm. Did you, um, you you said you ultimately ended up in a non-for-profit that that valued your anthropological Mm -hmm. perspective, but did you run into any challenges, um, you know, pitching your anthropological perspective or your degree to maybe a company that either didn't know what anthropology was or that maybe just didn't care?
1: Yeah. I mean, I certainly ran into the, (laughs) you know, oh, anthropology, like Indiana Jones, you know, that kind (laughs) of thing. I mean, the the initial perception that a lot of people have who are not in the field. So, yes, I had to figure out how to talk about, you know, what was important about anthropology to somebody who might not understand it. Mm -hmm. Um, That was definitely there. But I think most of the places and jobs I was looking at were in the realm of some kind of you know, social justice kind of, um, field. So they mm-hmm. at least understood a little bit and thought it was cool at least. <laughs> right.
0: That kind of understood where your perspective was coming from.
1: Right. Mm-hmm.
0: Interesting. Okay. And you said, y- cause you focused on women or er, women and gender studies as well, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what was, <laughs> you know, you came from the workforce. What was the transition like to being a student again and having to study and write papers and, <laughs>
1: i mean it was good and bad um i am a little nerdy like that and i love writing and um Mm -hmm. you know doing research and i I didn't feel like i got much of a chance to do that in my job you know and i I hated that i had to boil these ideas down to really basic things um that um, might get lost in translation when i was doing like presentations or something or you know i did trainings and stuff and Mm -hmm. so i had to you know especially with gender you know i had to you know, make things really black and white, or I felt like I had to, and that was, I hated that. Um, right. <laughs> um, although, you know, it's, it's useful to be able to do that. Um, so it was nice to come back and be able to like spend a little more time with ideas and concepts and, you know, um, uh, figure out what I thought was important. Um, um but you know it was it was also very intense. It feels like you never have a break. <laughs> um <laughs> you know. That. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um so I'm very much looking forward to finishing mm-hmm. for that. You know, that is my main motivator right now is yeah. um you know having an evening where I don't have something mm-hmm. writing to do.
0: <laughs> so how do you think your PhD will benefit you out in uh, out in the workforce?
1: Um well so right now I work um very part time with a uh, a doing qualitative research with a, an institute here at USF and um there are a couple other anthropologists there so they kno- I think you know they know the value of um our field and um I think having a PhD you know it's, it's in the act, it's it's sort of quasi academic, so okay. they uh, you know understand the process. Most of the people there have either master's or degrees or PhDs, so I feel pretty good about um about that. And I'm I'm looking at that um as a hopefully as a long-term opportunity. You know, that's one of my um, goals. I have a couple other ideas. You know, maybe going back into nonprofit, but more as a consultant. Okay. Um, and I think that when I was in nonprofit, I noticed that. Um, it was really valuable you know it was it was really good to find somebody who was who had a phd um you know it was like an automatic um you know they definitely knew what they were doing you know mm-hmm. that's sort of how sure. people in nonprofit thought about it um and so and i think i can offer you know a unique perspective having worked in nonprofit and um also having been in academia and being able to do some of the evaluation kind of things mm-hmm. that um they i think need um and don't get a lot of time to do so you know that's another avenue that i think would be um people would see as beneficial
0: i think yeah i think it is beneficial to know how both systems work and then you can float in between well if you do start being a consultant (laughs) with a phd that's a perfect opportunity to come back on anthra alert and talk about (laughs) consulting as an anthropology phd um, because that's actually that's something that i've read a lot about just with other anthropologists um you know, if you don't if you don't want to be in academia, you can <laughs> do consulting or something. It seems like a lot of, right. or at least some people do. So, you can come and talk to us about that. All right. Um, so, wrapping up the the show, is there anything, any final thoughts or any summary that you would like to throw in before we close the show for this week?
1: Hmm, I'm not sure about a summary. <laughs> I'm still uh, in the process of finishing up uh, my dissertation, so. Um, Yeah, that part, that's my actual, you know, last chapter is my conclusion, so. Awesome. (laughs) um.
0: Well, you don't have to summarize your research, but. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so I think that's all we have for you this week on Anthro Alert. talked about anthropology and parenting, so we'd like to thank Anna for coming on and and talking to us this week. Uh, We sure had a good time, and I hope you had, um, I hope you learned something and had a good time listening to us. If you enjoy the music on this week's show, uh, you can get a playlist of that on anthroalert.com. You can also find a summary of the show this week and a small bio of Anna and her work on uh, anthroalert.com. So if you're interested, go check that out. Um, So with no further ado, we're going to wrap it up for this week, and we will see you next week. Happy weekend.